We are in part six of our series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, we've been looking at them under the heading, uh, Ten Values That Build Strong Lives. Uh, we are in commandment number six, which is pretty simple. It says, you shall not murder. That seems pretty straightforward. That seems uh, like it, it's like it's to the point. Probably nobody in this room has committed murder. If you have, well, I don't want to know about it, okay? Uh, uh, we probably, nobody in our family has committed murder. Uh, we probably don't have that tendency very often uh, to murder someone. However, sometimes we do wish malice on individuals. I experienced that recently driving on Highway 6. Frank, close your eyes or close your ears, okay? I was driving on Highway 6. I was going 65 miles an hour. There was a lady behind me that was riding my bumper. I don't know what she wanted, but she was really, really close, and she did not look very pleasant in the mirror. Now, I don't know what she wanted. You know, I was driving 65, and, you know, I was obeying the laws, and, you know, I don't know what she wanted, so I wanted her off my bumper. So I did what any, any preacher would do. I tapped on my brakes. Uh, she immediately slowed down. Uh, probably, okay, probably not the smartest thing I've ever done, but it worked. You know, eventually she got around me and she gave me a gesture. And, you know, it wasn't a Giga Maggie sign and it wasn't Jesus is one way, but it was a gesture. I'm not for sure it was a gesture of endearment. Uh, but anyway, you know, so, so here's the thing is, we may not have murdered anyone, but we often wish malice on other people. Uh, you know that is true in your own life. Uh, in Wells, it's true in my life. Clarence Darrow once said, I haven't killed anybody, but I've read a whole lot of obituaries with glee. <laughs> Perhaps you've done the same thing in your own life. The fact of the matter is, we live in a violent society. By the time a child has reached the sixth grade, they have witnessed over 8,000 murders on television. They have witnessed 100,000 acts of violence on TV. Statistics tell us that there's 43 People are murdered every day in the United States. We are number one in homicides in the world. 43 people a day. We live in a very violent society. What do we do about it? You know, the command seems pretty, pretty straightforward. You shall not murder. But it's often misunderstood. It's very straightforward, but you'd be surprised how many people misunderstand it. So I want us to look at these words this morning under the heading, let there be life. Let there be life. And we'll see what God has to say in this. We'll look at it from two perspectives, what the command means and what the command does not mean. First, let's look at the negative. What does this command, what this command does not mean? First, it is not prohibiting killing animals. And all the hunters said, amen. The Bible is clear that there's nothing wrong with killing animals. You can do it. The Bible is clear. The Bible uh, talks about uh, many times animals were to be sacrificed to pay for the penalty of people's sins. Multiple animals could be sacrificed for the payment of sins. And one thing you will learn about God, God never contradicts himself. He will not say one thing in one passage and another thing in another passage, he never contradicts himself. So an unclear passage must give way to a clearer teaching on that passage. He would not say here, do not 
do this, and then somewhere else it's okay to do it. So that's not what it's talking about. Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, it says, Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Listen, you don't have to be a vegetarian. God does not command anybody to be a vegetarian, a fruititarian, a vegan, or whatever else out there you can think of. It's not commanded in Scripture. If you want to be that, that's okay. But you are not commanded to be such a thing. So we need to under, understand that. The second thing, first, it's not prohibiting killing animals. Second, it's not prohibiting capital punishment. God commands that sometimes there are, there are crimes that are so grievous that a person deserves to die. There are crimes that are worthy of the death penalty. Leviticus chapter 24 verse 17 says, If anyone takes the life of a human being, he must be put to death. The Old Testament teaching was a life for a life. If a person commits a murder, that person is to give up his life. His life is forfeited. It's known as capital punishment. Now, in order to maintain justice in society, in order to make sure that everything flows well, God has relegated that to the government, to the government officials. Romans chapter 13 verse 4 says that the government is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Look at that last phrase, bring punishment on the wrongdoer. You don't want to get in trouble with the law, don't be a wrongdoer. Don't break the law. It's pretty straightforward. If you break the law, if you're a wrongdoer, then God is going to use the government to administer justice to that wrongdoer. That's God's word. That's what he says that he will do. God allowed government to exist to administer justice. Now, I know what you're saying. But preacher, not all governments are fair. You're right. They're not because they're controlled by humans. There's not one government in the world that's perfect. President Obama's government was not perfect. Donald Trump's government's not perfect. There's not any government that's perfect. There are bad governments and there are good governments. But the thing is, that government would not exist if God did not allow it to be there. So God put that government there to, to administer justice, to, to create a, a society that will function the way God wants it. God wants justice. And he wants it to be done swiftly. Doing something swift, uh, you know, our system of appeals in America has made a mockery of what God intended in the original ways. When President William McKinley was assassinated, they caught, they convicted and executed his assassin, his, his assassin 53 days later. Do you think that would happen today? It would never happen. Our society has made a mockery of what God intended. Some of you may have heard of a man by the name of Charles Manson. Charles Manson has been in the news lately because his health was deteriorating in the prison in which he was staying. Charles Manson was accused in 1971, let's see if I get the wording right, of conspiracy to commit seven murders. And he was found guilty on all charges and he was sentenced to death. However, in California, they appealed the death penalty, so Charles Manson was reprieved from death row. He has now been in prison for 46 years. Does that seem like justice has been served? I mean, who paid for that? The taxpayers paid for it, the California taxpayers, not us. 
The California penal system and the California people paid for that 46 years. Was justice served? Is that just for those people that were murdered? That would never happen in God's plan for capital punishment. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, justice postponed is justice denied. Now, I know what some people say. I don't think capital punishment really deters criminals. Well, it does for the person that's executed. They'll never rape another person, and they'll never murder another person. So it does work in that sense. And just for your, your, your knowledge, the average life sentence in the United States today is eight years. Eight years. Justice. So this passage says you shall not murder. It's not talking about capital punishment. Third, it's not prohibited going to war. I get a kick out of those individuals that, that use this verse and say, see it says right there, you shall not kill. You shall not kill. It means you can't go to war. And you actually see a bumper sticker sometimes says, who would Jesus bomb? He probably wouldn't bomb. He'd let the government do it. This verse does not prohibit going to war. Listen, if this verse prohibits going to war, God's got a lot of explaining to do in the Old Testament. Even Jesus uses a parable to talk about, talk about uh, uh, being a follower of Christ. He goes, which one of you, if you had 10,000 troops and you go out to make war with an army of 20,000, you'd first go and sue for peace. Even he acknowledges the presence of war in that. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 8 says, there is a time for war. Now, if God says there's a time for war, that means that war must be justified in the eyes of God. Listen, there are some things worth fighting for. Uh, there are some things worth dying for. There are some things worth going to war for. It is worth going to war to defend innocent people. I believe that. It is worth going to war to stop the spread of evil. It's worth going to war to preserve freedom. Who was it that said, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. There is a time for war. So if he's not talking about killing animals, he's not talking about, uh, you know, capital punishment, he's not talking about war, what's he talking about? What does this have to do with my life? How does this apply to me? I mean, my family hasn't killed anyone, and uh, nobody in my family has, has murdered anyone. But did you know that the first murder that ever happened in the Bible happened within a family? Statistics tell us that, that most murders happen within a family context. I know you find that hard to believe, but it does. It happens within that. Some of you might think, well, that's only something that happens in Chicago. It would never happen in Waco, Texas. Yeah, it does. It happens everywhere. So we're not immune from it. So how does how this command applies to me? What does this command mean? First, God says life has value. Because life has value, God says no to suicide. Suicide is now the number two killer amongst college students. It is a number three killer amongst high school students. More students in high school are killed by suicide than they are by traffic accidents. I know that boggles your mind, doesn't it? 
But every day, you're hearing about somebody, some high school student or junior high student, they committed suicide. Why? Because they were bullied over the internet or somebody was made fun of them. You hear about it all the time. People say, it's my life and I have a right to live it and take it the way I want. God says, no, you don't. I gave you that life. I gave it to you. You don't own it and you don't have the right to take that life because I gave it to you. Scripture says you are not your own. You were bought at a price. It says even before you were born, God knew you. He knew everything about you. Job chapter 14 verse 5 says, man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of months and have set limits he cannot exceed. God says, I know the timetable. I know the calendar. I know the schedule of events for your life. And you don't have permission to disrupt it. You don't have permission to end it. Only I have that permission to do it. Most of us have probably been in a situation we felt despair. We felt like giving up. We felt like just, you know, checking in. Said, I can't live this way anymore. We've all been there. We've asked the question, is life worth living? Is this all there is to life? And just for a fleeting moment, may, may have thought, well, maybe if I just end my life, I can take care of this situation. We've thought that. We've asked, is life worth living? But I want you to know, as long as you are alive, there is hope. As long as you're breathing, there's always help. As long as you are, are able to, uh, to breathe and take in the air, God says, I have a plan for your life. You may not know what that plan is right now, but God has a plan. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it does not answer the questions that you have. God made you on purpose. You are here for a reason. So God says no to suicide. Second, God says no to mercy killing. Well, we know this as in today's terminology, euthanasia. Uh, that's, a, that's a good term for a mercy killing. Euthanasia is causing the death of someone due to deformity, due to old age, or due because they have an incurable disease. I'm not talking about people dying from natural causes or removing artificial life support from a person. I'm talking about intentionally ending a person's life. I remember when I served as a chaplain at a hospital, we had a case come into the ICU. This uh, patient had, had come in contact with the flesh-eating virus and had gotten into his lower extremities and worked its way into, the inner, into his inner body. And it began eating him alive from the inside. Literally eating his internal organs. We were keeping him alive by breathing for him. And I remember the hardest thing I ever had to do was go in there and talk to this woman I did not know and hold her hand and tell her to let him go, that he was not alive. And she removed the life support from him and he died instantly. His suffering was over. That's what I'm talking about. That's not, a, uh, that's not what God is talking about in this passage. Let that person die a natural death. You know, I'm not talking about you know, taking feeding tubes out and, and stuff like that. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what he is saying in this 
We're talking about intentionally murdering somebody because it's an, in, it's an inconvenience on your life. Their life is not worth living, so you decide you're going to play God and end their life for them. God says you do not have the right to do that. God says, I created them. I'm the one that has that right. Job chapter 12 verse 10 says, In God's hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Did you catch that? It says, In God's hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Only God has the right to take a life. Only God has that right. There's no doctors or anybody else has the right to take a life. I'm not talking about pulling the plug. I'm not talking about uh, doing those type of things. I'm talking about deliberately ending another person's life for convenience. So God says no to suicide. God says no to mercy killing. Also, God says no to abortion. Flip over to Psalm 139. Verses 13 to 16. We looked at this passage a few months ago when we were dealing with the issues of the heart. And we talked about abortion. And we looked at this passage. But I love this passage because to me it's one of the most poetic writings in, in, in all of literature. It's beautiful the way that David pens this and the way that David uh, writes these phrases. As I read verses 13 through 16, what I want you to do, and I know this is hard for some of you, Jeremy. I know this is hard, but I want you to circle the eyes, circle the me's, circle the my's. Just circle them. It draws emphasis to the passage. Listen to what David says. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You get the point of what David is trying to say? David is saying that's a life in the womb. It's not an it. It's not a blob of tissue. It's a life in the womb of the mother. And other passages in the Bible talks about how God knows our personality. He knows everything about us. He knows our genetic makeup. He knows our quirks. He knows everything about us. Why? Because he shaped us. He formed us. He was in charge. Listen, and this is going to be hard for you to grasp, but I understand it. I struggled with this in my office. I didn't know if I was strong enough to say it. I want you to hear me on this and listen to the heart of it. In the world in which we live, we may have unplanned pregnancies. From a human standpoint, there may be unplanned pregnancies, but there are no accidental conceptions in the eyes of God. Look, he is either sovereign over life or he's not. And you can't have it both ways. You can't say, God was in this one, but he wasn't in that one. You're not God and you don't have the authority or the power to say what God can and what God cannot do. He does not need your permission. And I know, I know that we struggle with that. You know, maybe we did not plan that pregnancy, but God said, I planned it. I orchestrated it. Why is this? Because I numbered the days. 
God knew in advance what would happen. God has a purpose. Maybe you did plan it, or maybe it was an accident, or God forbid, it came about because of some injustice that was committed upon you. And I know that hurts. But God said, I knew them before they were born. It's hard. God said, it's not a fetus. It's not tissue. It's a life that God has planned. He's in control. God says, all the days of our life were set aside. Listen, abortion is the ultimate short-circuiting of God's will. Regardless of what society says, regardless of what our politicians say, regardless of what our, our, our political parties say, regardless of what the Supreme, sort, sort, the Supreme Court says, abortion is murder. And we will stand on the Word of God. Thou shalt not murder. Now, if you don't like that, then you need to take your knife and it'll cut this section out of the Bible. But remember, when you cut this part out, you get to lose the other part. On my backside, it says, though the Lord is on high, He looks upon the lowly. So see, if I cut that part out, then I lose that, that great verse. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. <laughs> you stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. But if you don't like this psalm passage, you cut that out, then you've just cut out the other part too. See, you can't pick and choose what you like about God's Word. You say, okay, God. It's not so much how I interpret the Scripture. It's, God, how are you allowing Scripture to interpret me? You see the difference? Mother Teresa said it this way. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use violence to get what they want. That is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. By abortion, a mother does not learn to love, but kill even her own child to solve her problems. Some say, well, you know, no child should be brought in this world unwanted. You ever heard that one? Yeah. No child should be brought in this world unwanted. Well, here's the fallacy of that argument. You may not want that child. God does. God wants that child. Why? Because God's creating that child for a purpose that we do not know. God created it. There are no unwanted children in God's kingdom. They are all wanted. I know what you're saying. Well, preacher, this sermon really doesn't impact our lives very much. I mean, you know the evils of abortion. I don't have to give you the statistics. They've been etched in our mind. By the way, did you know that Planned Parenthood would now start performing abortions in Waco again? We thought we had that defeated. But they're, they're now got permission to start performing abortions in Waco. So you'll be seeing an ad taken out in the paper in the next few days uh, from all the pastors in town standing up against Planned Parenthood. Uh, so if you see my name on there, just you know, remember, hey, that's my pastor. That's my pastor. We won't be alone. Hundreds will be signing that, saying that we stand for life and not abortion. 
So you're saying, you know, it doesn't really impact my life. You know, maybe you even support legislation to stop it. Maybe you even want Supreme Court justices that overrule uh, Roe versus Wade. You know, some of you have been affected by it. I, I don't know personally. Some of you, maybe you've had a family member that's had an abortion. Or maybe a family member that's assisted somebody to have an abortion. Maybe you yourselves have had one. I want you to know there is still good news. There is still good news for you. You can repent of this just like any other sin that's ever been committed. Did you know that the Bible was written, most of the Bible was written by three murderers? That's right. Moses, David, and Paul. Three of the greatest murderers in the Bible, but yet God saved them, God redeemed them, God forgave them, and then God used them to accomplish a great task for him. Moses, the great lawgiver, David, the great king, Paul, the great prophet, the great apostle, the great missionary. God used them. You know what that is? We call that grace. That's the message of grace. Grace takes all of our mess-ups, it takes all of our troubles, all of our trials, all of our sins, all of our mistakes, and God comes in and puts His grace over it and says, it's all wiped away, it's all forgiven, it's all forgotten. Do you know there's something that God cannot do? He cannot remember your sins. Why? Because when He looks at you, He sees the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we keep praying, oh God, forgive me for that sin. God, forgive me for that sin. God says, I distinctly remember forgetting that. The Bible says, as far as your sins are from the east is from the west, God has cast them. Corey Tim Boom used to say that God has cast your sins into the deepest ocean of the, of the world and he put a no fishing sign on it. See, it's not God that, forget, that can't forget. It's we. We can't forget. Every time you think that you're on the verge of doing something wonderful in the kingdom of God, you know what? Satan rewinds the video. <laughs> Gauls you back to that sin. Oh, and you, oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, I can't do that because I'm such a failure. That ain't God. That's Satan. The Bible says, therefore now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It is not Christ who condemns you. It's Satan. If you're in Christ... All those things have been wiped away. That's what grace is all about. It does not matter so much where you have been, it's to what direction are your feet headed today. Where will you go from this day forward? That's the question you have to ask. I said it in the first service, I'll say again, that, that God takes all of our sins, He wipes them out in the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, and Satan can't ride over the blood. He can't do it. So all your sins, listen to me. If you don't hear anything else, listen to me. All your sins, past, present, future, were purchased on the cross of Calvary. Every one of them. And when Jesus comes and you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, he wipes away the book, the book, and it says, saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and Satan cannot condemn you. Anymore. Because you're in Jesus Christ. I know what some of you are saying. Oh, but preacher, you've never had an unwanted pregnancy. You're right, I never have. But I've counseled people who have. 
young teenagers coming into my office and saying, I'm pregnant, what do I do? I want to get an abortion. And they make the decision to have the child, and the child is a blessing to their life. Was it easy? No, it wasn't easy. It was hard. Or a single mom coming into your, coming into your church office and said, I had a one-night stand with a man, and now I'm pregnant with this child, and I don't know who he is. What should I do? So I've been there. I've been there. I want you to know, you matter to God. And your conception and your birth were not an accident. You were not a mistake. God planned you. And He has a purpose for your life. And the only way you find that purpose is to get in touch with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Come into a relationship with Him. And He says, I came that you may have life to the fullest. That's what He promises us. What you have to do, you have to get in touch with God. And you've got to come to know your Heavenly Father. And it's when you become to know your Heavenly Father that life takes on a new meaning. And you have a new, new significance to live life. Listen, we've all made mistakes. You know how I know that? Because the Bible tells me, all have sinned. Everyone has sinned. You know what that verse says? I've sinned, you sinned. Everybody in this room has sinned. And guess what? Everybody outside this room has sinned as well. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God made a way for us to find forgiveness. And that's by placing the condemnation placing the judgment upon Jesus Christ who paid the price for your sins. The Bible says he made him who had no sin become sin for you so that through him you might experience the righteousness of God. Through him. Through him. Through him. It's not through you. It's not through any deeds you've done. It's through what he has done and what he continues to do for people today. He will save you if you will come to him. The good news is that God can forgive you of every sin you've committed, everything you've ever regretted doing, all the mistakes that you've ever made. God can forgive you. Listen, God does not cause evil in the world. But God is the only one that can take evil and turn it into good. He's the only one. So maybe today that's God's call upon your life. You need to come to Him and say, you know, Lord, I need Jesus. We've talked about murder. I don't see too many murderers in here. But come on, we've all sinned. And you still need the message of grace. So maybe for some of you, for the very first time, you said, you know, I've got to be captured by the grace of God. You said you're a sinner. You admit that. You admit that you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you've committed your life to Him. Now He says, now make it public. Come before this group of people. The Bible says, if you're not confessing me before men, then I'll not confess you before my Father in heaven. That there's that element of element of, of coming forward. There's that element of making it public so people can love you and people can support you and people can hold you accountable for the decisions you made. For others of you, you're a follower of Christ. You, you can point, you can give me time and date and even the, the conditions outside of the weather of when you, uh, when you came to know Jesus Christ. You even heard the birds singing when it happened. But can you just be honest and say, but I'm not living a Christ-like life. I've allowed too much of the world to get into my life and I look a little bit more like the world than I do 
Jesus. I remember somebody explained it to me this time, this way one time. Somebody's going out in, in, into the farm, into a farmland. They come out, they find a bucket, and it's buried in the ground. They dig it up, say, what is this? They've got one of the metal detectors. They find it, they pull it up, they say, man, that is ugly. It's stained, it's warped, it's beaten up, it's got holes in it. It's designed to hold water, but I don't think it's going to hold much water. I think it's a bucket, but I'm not for sure that God can take that bucket and transform it into something new, and He can make it usable. See, that's what sin does to your life. Sin mars the image of God in each one of you. And somebody comes and says, man, it, it looks like it might be the image of God, but I'm not quite sure. But God comes in and changes your life. And so it's like, there he is. There's my child. I knew he was in there somewhere. But it's only whenever the image of Jesus Christ overshadows your own image. Some of you need to do that. You know, you, you've allowed the world to get into your bucket. And you say, God, I just want Jesus to fill me up. Fill me up. Some of you need to recommit, rededicate your life to Christ. Others of you, you need a church home. This is a good church. It's not a great church. I'm going to just be honest with you. Hey, it's not a great church. We got a lot of warts. We got a lot of scars. We got lots of bruises and, and things like that. But that's all right. We try to do life together. That's what we try to do. So some of you said, I need to be a part of a church home. We can tell you how to do that. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. A time for you to respond to what you heard. The praise team is going to come forward. They're going to lead us in a time of invitation. We're not going to drag it out. You know, we're not going to belabor the point. We're going to sing a verse. And if nobody comes, we might sing another one. If nobody comes, we'll close. But whatever God is leading you to do, we're going to invite you to come.